0: Uh, but, but we've been unpacking Daniel in our sermon series on ridiculous faith. And what we're tracking through here is, is we're, we're tracking the life of Daniel and, and these moments of faith, right? These moments where Daniel has to make a decision where he either trusts the God of the universe or he doesn't. And what we've seen time and time again is that it is Daniel's M.O. It is what he does to trust the God of the universe and put himself, because he trusts the God of the universe, he puts himself in situations where if God fails to show up, Daniel is done for. I mean, this is bold, risky faith. Standing on the precipice, he is on the edge, right? He is swimming in dangerous waters in this position where he continually puts himself in this spot where if God doesn't show up, he's done for. And what, what I've heard more than one time throughout this series is I've heard people say, oh, I wish I, wish I could have faith like Daniel, but, but I don't think I can. Right? I want to have ridiculous faith, but I don't think I can have ridiculous faith like that. I want to be able to do that, but I'm just not sure that I can have that kind of faith. And so um, here's where I, as your pastor, um, if you're visiting, um, we don't know each other that well, but I'm going to do it to you anyway. Um, And and if I am your pastor, then just deal with it. That's nonsense. You're being foolish. When you say, I can't have the faith that Daniel has, what I have to say to you is you are being ignorant. And the reason that you're being ignorant, right, and, and that's my cleaned up word, the reason that you're being ignorant is because the object of your faith is exactly the same as the object of Daniel's faith. You can believe and have faith like Daniel. It's attainable because your object of faith is the same as his. It. It's the God of the impossible. And you have got a lot of things. You have got a lot of things that you aren't sure. That you have struggles with faith. Haley talked about this up here. There's just the worry, the anxiety, life. I don't even know. Oh, here she is. I was like looking around. I'm like, I know she's here. The worry, the anxiety, it piles on and it's big and it's deep and I get it. But you know what? Daniel had faith in Yahweh. The maker, creator, sustainer of the entire universe. And his faith was in the God of the impossible. Guess what? That is the same God that we worship. That is the same God that we sing songs to. It is the same God that we praise. It is the same song that we sing Savior. He can move the mountains. Our God is mighty to save. Daniel had a saving faith. And listen to me. It is no different than the faith that we are trying to accomplish here. And this is faith that is born in the everyday life moments. This isn't faith that shows up when the chips are down, but this is faith that shows up in everyday moments. And that's what Daniel did. Daniel had a saving faith. And it was a day in, day out, mundane, boring, everyday faith that every once in a while showed up and changed the world. See, a lot of us, we have this idea that, well, if we ever had a moment like that, well, we would stand up and our faith would be seen as real. But day in, day out, it's non-existent. Last week at Revolution, and we've said this before, but we talked about these four things. That, that Listen, if you are going to be a growing Christian, if you are going to be a true disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, there are four things that you need to do and you need to wrap your head around them. And, and they're really, listen, they're non-negotiable. One, you need to read your Bible every day or listen to it every day. If you're not a reader, then listen to it, right? I mean, you can find any number of apps that will read the Bible to you, or you can go old school and get cassette tapes and have Charlton Heston read it to you. I don't care, right? But just. Read your Bible, be in the Bible every single day. And, and, and I asked this question last week and I didn't let people raise their hands and I'm not gonna let people raise their hands here because it doesn't end well for you no matter what. You raise your hand, people look at you like, oh, you're that guy. You don't raise your hand, people look at you like, oh, you're that guy, right? So you can't win, but, but ask yourself this, how many of you legitimately spent one hour reading your Bible last week? One hour. One hour over the course of last week reading your Bible. That is less than 10 minutes a day. We're like, we want to have ridiculous faith like Daniel. We want to be on the edge. We want to swim in dangerous waters. We want to be world-changing. We want people to come to know the grace of God. We want the kingdom to be different, and we want to be part of the movement. But I, I don't got like eight and a half minutes to spare every day to read my Bible and connect with the God of the universe. You've got to read your Bible every single day day. Two, you got to show up to church. There's not magic in church, but guys, there is magic in church, right? Like showing up at church does not save you, but showing up at church connects you and binds you together, and it's spiritual, and it's important. You got to show up. We were saying this, like, like if you'd have taken a, a survey, you know, 20, 30 years ago, generation ago, The average attendance to be a regular attender at church, the average of that was five times a month. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there's only four Sundays a month. I know. People were so connected to the church that Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, the average was at least five times a month. And that's what it took to be a regular church member. A regular church attender was five times a month. You know what it is now? You're considered regular. If you show up twice a month, if you hit 50%, then you're considered regular enough. My kid hits 50% in school, and we talk about it, and we try it again. But for us, I mean, our standards have fallen so far that if we hit 50%, I mean, some of us, if we come once a month, we call that good enough. And don't even get me started about when summer hits, we call it good enough. But if you really want to be a disciple that's growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ, then you read your Bible every day. You show up at church every week. If you work, I get it, right? People work. Then you do your part to connect in other ways, right? But, but most of us, that's not our issue. Most of us aren't working every Sunday, right? You read your Bible every day. You show up at church, right? You join a group. Join a small group. Join a prayer group. Join an accountability group. I don't care what kind of group you join. Join a group. Go to Celebrate Recovery. Pick something and plug in with other like-minded people that will help you in your journey. And the last thing, the one that stings, the one that's always hardest is you gotta ruthlessly cut sin out of your life. You gotta give sin no quarter. Sin can't live, right? Peacefully, in your life and expect you to have ridiculous faith in the God of the universe. It just doesn't work that way. But this is it, right? You can be like Daniel because I guarantee you that these moments that we're reading about where Daniel's faith showed up as huge and real and where he said, okay, God, if you don't show up, I'm sunk, but I'm putting everything on you. I am all in on you. We'll let the chips fall where they will and it's gonna be fine because I trust you. Listen to me, you can't have that kind of faith if you don't do the everyday work to have that kind of faith read your Bible every day, show up at church, get plugged into a group, and work to ruthlessly, not nicely, ruthlessly cut sin out of your life. Men, some of you need to throw your computers away. Some of you need to go back to the age of flip phone, right? Some people need to quit their jobs and just move to another job because this doesn't work. Some of, you, some of you need to, to just probably stop driving because every time you get behind the wheel of a car, you just can't help yourself, right? But be angry and irritable and hard to get along with. Right? Some of you just need to come clean with past things and just let them go. Some of you need to work hard to forgive where forgiveness is really difficult, but you've got to ruthlessly cut sin out of your life if you expect to be this person that Daniel was. But listen to me, I'm not up here selling you a false bill of goods. You can have the experience and the relationship with God that Daniel had because the object of your faith is exactly the same as the object of his faith. Okay. And it is a faith that saves. This is what James is talking about. We have a hard time with this in James, um, but James says this in two fourteen. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Right. So if you like, oh, I have faith in God, but my life doesn't show it in any way, shape, or form. James says, and we've always struggled with this, but we know it's true. James says, look, it it's not real. That kind of faith doesn't save you because that kind of faith is in a false God. If I have faith in God, but it doesn't cause me to act differently or be differently or be more generous or have a heart that bleeds for people or to cut sin out of my life or to dig in, then that faith is not faith in the God of the universe. That faith is in a God that I created myself that wants me to be happy and be in heaven no matter what and will let me do whatever I want. That God doesn't exist. That God isn't real. You've got to wrap your head around this because we are getting to the end of this series in Daniel where we talk about ridiculous faith week in, week out. And you cannot have faith in a God that you've created because it won't do anything for you. There is one God, creator and sustainer of all things, and he is in charge of all things, and this is his world And he is mighty to save, but a faith that saves is a faith that moves you, period. Right? And so as Christians, we are all living on the edge. That just is what it is every single day. If you are living a life that honors Christ, you are living on the edge. And when you have these big moments, you want to know what it's going to be like. You want to know what you would do in that situation then it's really easy to answer. Look in the mirror and ask yourself what you're doing right now. Because if you're not doing it now, you're not gonna, look at me, I am out of breath, right? It's be like, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow, I'm gonna run a marathon. I'm gonna do it, right? But I can't even get excited up here on the stage walking back and forth without losing my breath. But it's okay because on that day, I'm gonna show up, man, and I'm gonna do it. Come on. You wanna know what you're gonna do on that day? Look in the mirror and ask yourself what you're doing right now. It's just that simple. All right, let's let's get into the text here. Daniel chapter six. Uh, at this point in time, Daniel has. Uh, last week, um, we we saw the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Right? We knew that was happening. Daniel predicted that it would happen way back in chapter 2 when um, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue that Daniel interpreted. We knew that was going to happen, that the Babylonian Empire would fall, and in its place, another powerful empire, not as powerful as, as Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, but powerful, would rise, and it would actually be a combined kingdom. We knew that would happen, and then last week, we saw it happen. We read about it happening as... as King Belshazzar had the writing on the wall, um, and and Daniel interprets it, and it says, hey, before this very night, you and your kingdom will be no more. And that's exactly what happened as King Darius and, and, and the Medes and the Persians took the city. And as they took the city, King Darius, right? King Darius, the Mede, becomes ruler. And Darius is of a different breed, Rather than getting rid of everyone around, um, uh, around the courts of the Babylonian Empire, instead of getting rid of everyone, what happens is he actually takes the ones that have done well and he pulls them close because he says, look, why would I get rid of people that would be able to serve me well? And this is his plan. And so Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. He's like, look, I'm a king. I ain't got time to be in charge of everything. So he divides the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appoints a high officer to rule over each province. That's 120 governors, basically. There are 120 governors that are in charge of their province. They basically are supposed to act like the king of their province. Then what he says is, so here's what I'm going to do, though, because that's 120 people. And Some of them might have sticky fingers, some of them might have bad attitudes, some of them might have treacherous hearts, some of them might want to steal from me, some of them might want to usurp me, some of them might just not be good people, whatever. So I'm going to put three people over them, and the three people over them will make sure, okay, oh wait, right here, the three people over them will make sure that I am protected. So the king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests right? This makes sense. This is just good administration. Like, hey, I can't be in charge of all of this, 120 provinces, but I want some checks and balances. So here are three people that are closer to me that I trust even more that I'm going to put over them. They'll make sure that these guys towed the line, and then these three will report to me. So I've only got to be in charge of these three, and as long as they do their job, I'm good. But here's the deal. Daniel, of course, is awesome. He's always awesome. Daniel's who proved himself more capable than all of the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king soon made plans to place him over the entire empire. So get this, this is Darius's strategy. Daniel is awesome and everybody knows it. And so his plan is this. I'm gonna make Daniel in charge of everything and then the only thing I have to do is sit back Be in power and control and let Daniel rule everything in my place. This is the best plan, right? This is a great plan for him because Daniel has shown himself. He doesn't fail. This is, by the way, this is what kings always do, right? It's what Pharaoh did with Joseph. He put Joseph as second command and he stepped back and he let Joseph run the whole thing back in Genesis, right? We've seen that. It's what Nebuchadnezzar did eventually. He put Daniel in control. He stepped back and he let Daniel run the whole thing right? And so Darius is doing what's normal, and he's decided that Daniel is that guy, and he's elevated him. He's about to elevate him to that position. And here's the deal. It's not just because God's with him. See, see here's, here's something I need you to understand. We talk about ridiculous faith. Hopefully you're getting it by now, but I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to twist it a little bit more. You've got to show up. You've got to do your part. Right? It's one thing to say, "Oh, well, God's God's anointed Daniel, so of course that's why this is true." Right? God's anointed Daniel, so of course he's in charge of everything. Of course he's always successful. Of course he always proves himself to be more capable. No, no, no. Listen to me. Yes, Daniel is anointed and gifted by God. But Christian, understand this. Daniel does his part to work hard, right? And, and it's just this thing that you have to understand. Your sa- oh man, your saving faith needs to be evident in your performance, in your attitude, and your character. Like Daniel has this saving faith in the God of the universe. He has ridiculous faith, but you know what? That's not enough to just automatically mean that he's going to be successful. He has to do his part, right? There is, in, in the world of faith... There is a marriage between what God will do and what God expects us to do. Now, I want to be really, really careful about this because I I can't have you think wrongly about this because that would be a mistake, right? Please never walk away from this church from something I've said from any church or anything anybody says, I hope, but especially because because I don't want to be guilty of this. Don't walk away from this church hearing me and thinking that somehow I'm called to earn my salvation, that somehow I need to work really hard so that God will save me. No, 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 no. Listen, the whole point of the cross is that you can't save yourself. That's the whole point of the cross is that you can't save yourself. Yet, what happens is you still have to say, I accept it. Right? You can't save yourself, but, but you have to submit to the cross. And in this, Daniel has been anointed by God, and he has got all of this potential to do all of these things. But, but God isn't going to do it for him. Daniel still has to show up, and he has to prove himself. He still has to perform. He still has to have the right attitude, and he still has to have the right character. There are far too many Christians... People that believe in and profess faith in the God of the universe, and their attitude stinks. And their performance is lackluster. And their character is shady at best, and they know it. Right? And God has given them, but they're not coming alongside to do their part. And so they won't prosper they won't be successful. Their ministry won't flourish. Their neighbors won't look at them and say, oh my goodness, I need to know this God that you're talking about because your life just reflects it so clearly. No, no, no. Listen to me. There's this draw that has to happen. And Daniel paints this picture perfectly, right? Like God has ordained him with skills and abilities and wisdom and knowledge, but Daniel has to do his part. And when Daniel does his part, what we see is we see that that God honors that, right? And Darius sees it, and Darius wants to elevate. The problem is this. While Daniel's faith is evident in in his work, right, Um, and and in his character, um, here's the thing. It makes him an easy target. And the reality is this for you, too. And so I I don't want to be ever accused of whitewashing or sugarcoating hard things, your faith will make you an easy target. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So what's happening here is Darius is about to put Daniel in charge of everything. His peers are jealous And so they start to look and examine his life to try to find something that they can condemn him or accuse him of that will cause King Darius to say, "Nope, Daniel's not the guy I thought he was. Let's elevate somebody else. Hopefully one of them. Probably because they have an agreement with each other. You know, like if one of us is in charge... We can kind of have each other's backs. We could grease the wheels a little bit. We could make sure that things work out to our benefit. So they look to accuse Daniel. Here's the deal, though. Daniel has lived such a life that they can't find anything. Think about this. Daniel has been in politics for 70-plus years. Daniel has been in a position of influence. Daniel has had the ear of the king, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, multiple different people on multiple different occasions. And they can't find anything. No shoddy work. No bribes taken. No mistresses. No corruption. No affairs. I mean, they pour into his life, and they can't find anything. No time where he lost his temper, right? No time where he flew off the handle. They they look to accuse him of any number of things, and they can't find any reason to accuse him. And because, as Christians, our faith makes us vulnerable, here's what they do. They make something up. And here's it's not hard for them because his faith makes him so vulnerable that it's easy for them to step in and accuse. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. And so there's something I need you to know, right? What happens is because Daniel is faithful to the God of the universe, it actually makes him quite easy to accuse if they just backdoor it a little bit. And listen, Christian, If you are living a life of faith in the God of the universe, in this cultural climate that we live in, your faith will make you easy to accuse, too. That's just the way it is, right? I mean, that happens to us. Like, you believe that? Like, like, really, you believe that? Like, you think that's sin? Like, that's just normal, that's not sin. Like, I, how, how, how ridiculous is that behavior? I can't believe that you would think that is true. The earth, the earth is how old? Right? Wait, wait. You don't, you don't think that everything evolved from, like, single cells? You don't believe that there was this giant bang that created everything? You think God made everything? Right? Like, like you really think there's a heaven and a hell? You really think there's something called sin? Do you really think there's a righteous God that is going to be in charge of everything that you have to answer to? Like in this world, like we make ourselves easy targets when we talk about things like sin. We talk about things like the Bible being the absolute inerrant word of God. We make ourselves easy targets when we say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. If, if we tell people, look, you are going to hell unless, and we would say it nicer than this, By the way, time out, say it nicely, right? But when we say to people, look, you are going to hell unless you turn to repent from your wrongdoing repent from your sinfulness and trust that jesus christ is the one true god of the universe and follow him instead unless you trust that he died to pay the penalty for your sins as a propitiation for your sin and he rose again conquering death and you've got to admit that you're wrong and you've got to look to him as right and you've got to follow him with everything you have when we say something like that we're bigots and we're arrogant oh and we're dangerous to children we're a terrible influence we say things like, "like, you know what? We're not mad at people who live a homosexual life. So we're not mad at them. But when we read the Bible, it just becomes so clear that it's not what God wants. We're not mad at people who are in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. We're not mad at them. But when I read the Bible, it's just so clear that's not what God wants." And I'm not mad at people who get abortions. I, my heart breaks for them. But when I read Scripture, it's just so clear that it's not what God wants. And we do that, and when we act that way, we make ourselves such an easy target for the lion's den. We're just, it's so easy. And it's easy because people look at us, and it's easy to say that, that we are hard to get along with. And it's easy to say that we're narrow-minded. And it's easy to say that we're bigots. We're not. But when we confess faith in the one true God of the universe and we say we are going to follow him no matter what it means, it means that we are going to be in a position where we have to say to other people, we think you're wrong. It's a dangerous place to be. To have saving faith is to make a choice every day to walk on the edge where people will disparage or where people might condemn. Lucky for us, we are not at a point where anybody's going to throw you in a lion's den. There are parts of the world where that might be true. We're spared of that. But to follow Jesus well means that you are walking on the edge and you're doing it on purpose. And so what happens is the wise men, the the, the, the other several wise men, they make a plan in conjunction with Daniel's faith, and they know They know that Daniel worships the God of the universe, right? Um, And when I say worships the God of the universe, I mean Daniel has never made any qualms about it. He has told every king. I'm sure he's told Darius, I will follow your commands as long as they don't violate my God's commands, right? And Darius is fine with this. Darius knows that Daniel is a Hebrew and that he worships Yahweh. Darius knows this. He knows that Daniel is devoted to the God of the universe. But what happens is they come up with a plan to trick Darius into condemning Daniel. And so what they do is they come together, there's there's these other wise men, they come to the king and say, hey, look, we talk to everybody. We talk to all your governors, all 120 of them. We talk to all the wise men. We talk to all the seers. We talk to everybody important. And they all agree that this is what you need to do. You need to sign a law that says for the next 30 days, it is illegal for anyone to pray to any God or any person except for you, King Darius, because you're so great and we want everybody to know it. So everybody agrees that you should do this. And so King Darius, he's not gonna argue with everybody. He says, sure, and he signs it into law. Oh, by the way, there's a punishment. If you get caught praying to any other God but Darius, here's the punishment. You get thrown in a pit with hungry lions. And that will teach you and anybody else, that you're not to be trifled with. Darius signs the law, not really knowing what he's doing, um, and they know they've got him. They know they've got him, because they know that Daniel can't help himself. And so what happens is Daniel learned that the law had been signed. He went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and they found him praying and asking for God's help. So this is exactly what happens, right? Daniel goes home. He hears about this law that says you can't pray to anybody but King Darius for 30 days, and he says, wow, huh, that's problematic. So he goes home, and he says, what should I do? Oh, yeah, here's the deal. I'll do what I've always done, right? And he opens his windows. Three times a day, he kneels down facing Jerusalem, and he prays. Now, here's what's weird about this, right? Christians, Jews at the time, didn't have to pray that way, there was no rule that said they had to open their shutters and be seen praying. There was no rule that said they had to pray three times a day facing Jerusalem. There was no rule. He could have done any number of things. He could have just not prayed for 30 days. Some of you are thinking, hey, that's easy. I haven't prayed for 30 days. Don't raise your hand. It'll embarrass you. But, but he could have just said, I'm not going to pray for 30 days. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. He could have said, well, I will pray in secret. He could have said, you know what? I'll close my windows and pray. He could have done any number of things, but you know what he decided to do? He decided to not change a thing. Because his faith is in a God who saves, and he says, You know what? I'm going to follow my routine and I'm not going to change a thing because I'm not worried or scared about anybody except a healthy fear for the Lord, my God. That's it. I'm not doing anything else. And so he went up and he prayed and the officials went together to Daniel's house and they found him praying and asking for God's help. And I'm sure they think they've got him, but Daniel knows he's fine. And Daniel has a prayer life here. Daniel has a routine. Daniel has daily devotional practices that he does that he is not willing to compromise honest with you, this is a deficiency in my life. And as your pastor, if it's a deficiency in my life, I'd be willing to bet that there's at least a few of you where it's a deficiency in yours. I have daily routines and practices for devotions, but man, I am quick to compromise them. And so sometimes they happen just like I planned. And sometimes because I'm in a mood or I'm having a day or life happens or whatever, they get compromised. It's so easy to say, oh, yeah, I'll get to it later. I'll put it off. Do it later. And and guess what? Then my devotional life just never happens. But Daniel says, you know what? No, no, no. I'm not compromising anything here because he knows how powerful God is, and he knows that everything good about him comes from God, and that his faith is in the God that saves. Look at this. Um, Psalm 92 But the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon for they're transplanted to the Lord's own house. They will flourish in the courts of our God. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. Daniel says, you know what? No, 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 no. I'm not willing to compromise any of my devotional life. I'm not willing to compromise anything. It would be so easy for him to do. It would be so easy for him to compromise just this one time. And you've been asked, oh my God, Oh, you've been asked. You've been asked to compromise just a little bit. Just a little bit. And every time you're asked to compromise, just a little bit. What happens when you do? Well, guess what? You get asked to compromise just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And it just doesn't stop. But Daniel knows this. He showed us this at the beginning in in Daniel 1, where he showed us saying, you know what? No, no, no. No matter what the world says, I know that I will never be elevated by disobeying or dishonoring God. The only way for me to be elevated in God's eyes is to get low. And so he does what he's always done, and he doesn't compromise One little bit, because he knows that the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon, and they will be taken, and they will be transplanted to the house of the Lord, and they will flourish, even in old age. And he knows it. And so listen to me, listen to me. You just got to understand this. You just got to wrap your head around this. You've got to know this. Listen, faith without devotion is dead, or at least it's really sick if you are here today and you have no devotional life, you've got no devotional life, then your faith is either dead or it's on life support. Because you can't, James tells us, James 2.14, you can't have a saving faith that's not rooted in the God of the universe if you are not growing then you're withering. Jesus tells us uh, in, in the Gospels about the vine. He says, look, man, some, some shoots on the vine are growing, and they flourish, and they'll be pruned, and, 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 and they'll be treated, and, and, and they'll grow even more. Others are dry and dead, and you know what we do with them? This is Jesus's words, not mine. He says, we cut them off, and we throw them in the fire because they're good for nothing. Faith without devotion is dead, or at least it's really, really sick. But we keep going. Uh, let me read to you what, what happens next, because um, this is, is kind of funny, especially when we compare Darius to what Nebuchadnezzar has done in, in the past. Oh, my goodness. All right, we're going we're gonna to go quick here, so track with me. Um, starting in 12... So they went straight to the king, and they reminded him about his law. Did you not sign the law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to any divine, uh, anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Well, yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. See, this is a weird thing for the Medes and Persians. Um, it, it, it makes sense when you read through the book of Esther, right? As soon as the king signs a law, that law is considered gospel truth, and well, gospel truth, see what I did there? I, I, I mixed metaphors. That law is permanent. It can can't can't be changed. So even if Darius was like, oh, never mind, I changed my mind. He's like, no, it's the law. The law can't be changed. Okay. And and that's just the way that it is. That's why in Esther, when Artaxerxes says, yeah, uh, he says to Haman, yeah, you, you know what? Kill all the Jews. I don't care. Later he finds out his wife is a Jew and he's like, oh, time out. He can't say, never mind. I was kidding. He has to sign a new law that says, oh, by the way, if you help the Jews, I'll reward you. Instead of fighting against the Jews, help the Jews when people come against them and I'll reward you. And that's how he has to do it because once the law is set, the law is set. And so this is what Darius says. He's like, yeah, right? You know that, like that decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians. Can't be revoked. Then they told the king, see, not until he, he said, oh yeah, yeah, it's true. Then they tell the king, oh, well, by the way, here's the problem. The man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of the predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last, verse 16, at last, the king gave the order, For Daniel to be arrested and thrown in the den of lions, the king said to him, may your God who you serve so faithfully rescue you. Contrast this with Nebuchadnezzar, right? And the fiery furnace who says, what God will be able to save you from me, right? If you don't bow down to my statue, I'm throwing you in the furnace. What God will save you from me? And here Darius says, oh, Daniel, you're so valued, right? I hate to do this, but I don't have a choice may your God who you serve so faithfully, may he rescue you. And then then he goes and a stone is brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. It's the death sentence. Because Once the king's seal is on there, and you get the picture that he made the nobles do it too, because he's like, I ain't taking the blame for this alone, right? Um, This is your doing. You put your your, your seals on there too. Um, But once that's done, that seal cannot be removed. It would be the penalty of death if somebody came along and tried to roll the stone away and save Daniel. This is by king's order. Then the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. This pagan king who doesn't know Yahweh, but knows that Daniel, his friend and advisor and ally, is devoted to Yahweh, decides to pray to Yahweh. He fasts and he prays. He refuses his usual entertainment. We can skip that. I don't know what that means. I'm not sure I want to know. Um, And he couldn't sleep all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and he hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish. Anguish, he's miserable because this is is his friend and his advisor and the most valuable man in the kingdom. And he knows it and he cries out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions. He's asking and he's got hope and he's got worry. He's got both. He's hopeful because he knows that Daniel's God is powerful, but he's worried because this is completely beyond him. And I just want to say to you today, like if you're here this morning and there are areas of faith where you are being stretched and you've got hope and you've got worry, that's not tragic. Hope and worry they're not faith but they're building blocks to faith, right? God will put you in positions where he will take your hope and your worry, and he will grow them into real faith that just trusts no matter what. If you're you're here and you're in a spot where you've got hope and worry, God is doing something for you right? We keep going. Uh, Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. And the king says this. He says, when, oh, well, I'm going to skip ahead. The king says this. He was overjoyed, and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Now, there's two things I want you to point out here. Two things I want you to know as we wrap this up. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den and not a scratch was found on him. Why? For he had trusted in his God. James tells us, in James 1, ask, but ask with faith. Because if a person asks with faith, he's like a ship on the sea being tossed around in waves. He's wishy-washy and that kind of asking gets you nothing. Nothing. It just gets you nothing. But make your faith real. And so Daniel, not a scratch was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. If Daniel had gone into the lion's den fearing for his life, what I read there, and this is Daniel writing this, what I read there, if Daniel had gone into the lion's den fearing for his life, they'd have tore him limb from limb. And it's not because lions can smell fear. Maybe they can. I don't know, but it's because he had resolve and faith in a God that saves. Ridiculous faith. This is the way that Daniel has processed this and shared it for us. Is that he had faith? Because he had faith, God shut the mouths of lions. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews eleven, the hall of faith. This is Daniel's lived a great life, but this is the one that makes it into the hall of faith. Daniel shut the mouth of lions. And when you wait on God, here's my advice for you. And you're going to wait on God. Christian, it's going to happen. Choose to wait with confidence and joy. Because that's where God does things. When you are faithful and confident and full of joy, God will do things. And he will use you, like Daniel did, to prove that he's real. Can you imagine what Darius, what happened in his heart? I mean, he he was hoping against hope, but he was worried. He knew, right? He knew, and he's like, Daniel, was your God who you serve faithfully? Was he able to save you? And you can imagine that the words of Daniel, long live the king. My God, shut the mouth of lions. That those words were like God's words to Darius. That's what I want for me, and that's what I want for you. I want God to use you in such a way that through you he is showing himself as real to the people that need to know it. It is my heart's prayer for you. It's my heart's prayer for this new church that through Blessed Hope Community Church and its people and its ministry and its mission that what we do and the way that we are, will show the people of Vinton and Benton County and around Iowa, or wherever we get to be, will show them through our behavior, actions, and words, God will show up and prove himself as real because we were faithful. This is the call to ministry. This is why we do this. This is what evangelism and outreach and mission is all about. This is how we live with purpose and on purpose as Christians. And so the text ends this way. There's a few more verses and uh, three things happen. Uh... Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den, (laughs) and check this out, not just them, but also their families, their wives, and their children. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. It's a little graphic. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and... During the reign of the next king, Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Persian matters because it was predicted about a hundred years prior to this through the prophet Jeremiah that a king for a nation that wasn't in power yet and a king that hadn't been born yet that would be named Cyrus would be the one to send the Jews home at the end of their exile. And now all of a sudden, Because of Daniel's ridiculous faith, he has found himself in a position to be second in command only to King Cyrus, to be the advisor that has the king's ear at just the right time when God had said, hey, there will be a king that hasn't been born yet for a nation that's not in power yet, and his name will be Cyrus, and he will be the one to sign the law, to send the decree that will send the Jews back home after I have finished with their exile. And now Daniel finds himself as the advisor to King Cyrus for just that moment. We're going to find out a little bit more about that in his prayer and perseverance in prayer next week as we wrap up the series. But here's what I want you to know, just for right now. We're going to ask the the elders to come forward, prepare to serve communion. And and here's, here's what I want you to know as we do this. Our God is a God that saves. He can be trusted to show up. We can know this And here's one of the most key ways that we know that our God is a God that saves who can be trusted to show up. Because when we needed it most, God showed up in the most spectacular of ways. You and I were destined for an eternity in hell. And hell is real, and hell is painful. Hell is an existence that is separate from the God of the universe. I don't know what hell is going to be like, and thankfully, I never will. All I know about hell, we've talked about this before, is that hell is not designed for you or I. Hell was designed as punishment for Satan. Hell is bad enough of a place that Satan, the enemy of your souls, is going to be punished eternally there. But the word tells us that those of us that are separate from God because of our sin— that that's where we will end up also. But thanks be to God, we don't have to. Because our God is a God that saves, and our faith in that God is a saving faith. That's why we celebrate communion. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to celebrate communion together, just thanking God that he is a God that saves. And I'll tell you, when we celebrate communion here at Blessed Hope, we celebrate open communion What that means is that anyone here who is a Christian, is a follower of Jesus Christ, is invited and encouraged to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member of the church. You just need to be a member of the family of God. And as we take communion together, what we're doing is we are remembering that while we were without hope, God came in the person of Jesus Christ and provided hope. That he lived a perfect life and voluntarily gave himself up as punishment to pay the penalty for our sinfulness, and he rose from the dead, conquering death once and for all so that we could enter into, now sinless, enter into a relationship with the God of the universe, and we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And so, listen, as we come to communion, we do this knowing that what we're doing is we are giving thanks to the God of the universe because he is a God that saves, and when we have faith in him, we have a faith that saves. We practice communion simply, right? Um, as best we can understand it, the way that it's laid out in scripture, that Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, he broke the bread, he passed it, and he said, hey, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this to remember me. And he's, what he's saying is like, my body is about to be beaten and bruised and hung on a cross for your sake. This is a picture of my body. It is going to be broken for you. When you eat this, remember that that happened, that my body paid the penalty for your sinfulness. And then in the same way he poured the cup and he passed the cup and he said, this cup is, is the blood of the new covenant and it's poured out for you. And, and that's what we celebrate, that, that his blood is the seal in this new covenant, that his blood paid the price for our sin forgiveness and our covering of sin and our salvation. So as we come forward, um, we'll start in a second. And as you come forward, um, encourage you to take the bread and, and take the cup and then just take it back to your seats um, and have a time of prayerful reflection. And then when everyone is sitting, we will all take it together. Um, and uh, we just encourage you to do that. Heavenly Father, God, you are good and gracious and kind. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you that you are a God who saves and that our faith in you is a faith that saves when it's a faith in the real God of the universe, not the one we create, but the real God of the universe, when it's a faith in Jesus Christ, the one you sent. It's a faith in his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. Your word is clear that apart from Jesus, no one can be saved. It's only when we accept and confess and follow Jesus, that it makes sense, that it works. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your body that was broken. We thank you for your blood that was spilled. We thank you for the salvation that you offer. We love you and we praise you. Amen.